I'm Barbara Corcoran. I'm a real estate mogul. I'm a shark investor on ABC's Shark Tank, and I also started a company named The Corcoran Group. I never see myself as a woman at work. I just ignored the fact I was a female. I saw my competitors as exactly that. They were my competitors. They all had suits on, but I didn't think, oh, well, they're men and I'm a woman. I never had those thoughts. I thought, they're my competitors, and I'm coming to get it. (laughs) That's it. Simple as that. This is Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal, helping women empower themselves financially. Now, Veronica Dagger. Barbara Corcoran is a businesswoman, investor, consultant, and television personality, best known for being a shark investor on ABC's Shark Tank. At 23, Barbara borrowed $1,000 and quit her job as a waitress to start a real estate company in New York City. Over the next quarter century, she turned that loan into a $5 billion real estate business, the Corcoran Group. Barbara is also a motivational and inspirational speaker and author of the bestseller, Shark Tales, How I Turned $1,000 into a Billion-Dollar Business. So, Barbara, you were very young when you started your own company, and that was really unusual for women at that time. So I'm just wondering how you got the courage to do that. Well, actually, it takes a lot less courage to start young because, as you know, when you're young, you're too stupid to know any better. You've never fallen off a bridge, hit your head. You don't know what to expect. So I was dumb and happy and naive and it's really the best time to start any business. What's your advice for women who are thinking that their life just isn't enough? They want something more out of that? Because I've heard you talk about that in past interviews, that you just wanted something more for yourself. So what would you say to them? Well, I would say if you're not happy with what you're doing, and I don't mean 100% happy, but 95% happy, where you get up in the morning, put your feet on the floor, and you're excited to go to work, you ought to change it. I mean, why would you waste another year of your life doing something that isn't totally fulfilling? Uh, What stands in most people's way is fear and analysis. I think when you analyze things to death, you always come up with the rightful conclusion that you shouldn't change. (laughs) That's it. And it's the wrong conclusion because you're not listening to your spirit and your heart when you're getting up in the morning. I say change. And of course, I'm an advocate of women and anyone actually who can walk and talk should be starting their own business. Like, why would you want to work for someone else if you could work for yourself? For me, that just seems like, uh, why would I even think of that? So if you're thinking of starting your own business, the best time to do is when young and stupid get there out there. You don't want to die saying, I wish I should have, could have. The saddest people I know are those kinds of people. How do you tune into that gut feeling within you? You pay attention to it, number one, and actually rate your gut feeling much higher than your intellect. I think we're all uh, in a society where people put tremendous importance on uh, analysis, uh, logical thinking. And yet that's the least important thinking in life. When anybody looks back at their life and thinks about anything that's the high point in their life, it was always a knee-jerk reaction, a gut reaction. It wasn't plotted out and planned meticulously with the right credentials, the right education. It was always the stuff where you followed your heart, whether it be personal matters or business, it's all the same. So I think you just have to learn that the best instinct is your own instinct. What about that whole idea of risk-taking, though? Because some women will be like, you know, I have so much to lose. Maybe I am a little bit more established. I'm afraid to take the risk. Well, almost anyone who's been working more than two or three years is at risk because they've already started their path toward greatness on a certain path 
path, uh, uh, building up uh, the, the credits under your belt and the experience. So of course, if you're going to uh, make a change in your life, you're always at risk and there's always more to lose than to gain on first blush. But once you get into it, it doesn't take long before you realize, oh God, I'm making half the money I made, but I can see the light at that end of the tunnel. I can't believe I'm not doing this. I can't believe I'm doing this. And you start to see the rhyme and the rhythm of the whole thing and why it was the best decision you made. You were very, and you still are very successful in a male-dominated field. How were you able to do that? Well, you know, I never see myself as a woman at work. I just ignored the fact I was a female. I saw my competitors as exactly that. They were my competitors. They all had suits on, uh, but I didn't think, oh, well, they're men and I'm a woman. I never had those thoughts. I thought, they're my competitors and I'm coming to get it. (laughs) Simple as that. And uh, lucky for me, I wanted it more badly than any of my male counterparts. I wanted success a lot more badly. I was more needy and lucky for me, I was a poor kid. I wasn't inheriting anything from my dad or that dad before them. And so I really had less to lose, if you want. I could go at it 150%. What's the worst that was going to happen? I was going to be poor again? Well, that wasn't so bad. I was happy poor. So the minute you, as a woman or anyone, see you see yourself as a disadvantage, like, oh, my God, I'm a girl in a man's world. Okay? Uh, I'm up against the big boys. The minute you see yourself as less, you're right. You are less. <laughs> So I chose to ignore that and just see myself as a competitor. What about, though, the guys who ignore you or you're in a room, for example, you're the only female voice and you just get talked over? Oh, it happens to me all the time. It happens to me every day I'm on the Shark Tank set. I'm with Lori, who's a woman, and then the rest are guys, and they talk over me all day long. It's the largest thing I struggle with. I have a smaller voice, I'm softer spoken, and I'm polite, which (laughs) gets in your way. But I have to say um, what I've done my whole life in any male dominance situation is I've asked myself, uh, what would a man do? And guess what? My hand goes up in the air. I speak up and I talk over somebody to be heard two, three times until I'm heard. I don't give up on that. And so I think um, that little trick I did very young, what would a man do? Oh, I'll take credit before even the job is done. Hey, there's a good idea. (laughs) Before I get to the top of the mountain, I'll take full credit. Whereas a woman's going to get to the top of the mountain, set up camp, make sure it's decorated. The kids are okay. Everybody's fed. Is everyone happy? And then maybe take partial credit. A little different headset. Were you ever worried about being seen as pushy by the guys? Um, No. I was worried at maybe looking sexy. And I tried to look sexy because I thought that was an advantage too. I wore short skirts and bright colored suits because I wanted to be noticed. But pushy? No, I never thought about that. You know, if I was accused of pushy, uh, in which happened in many situations, not among my own staff, because I think, well, maybe I was pushy. Maybe they were afraid to tell me. Obviously, they were working for me. So maybe, who knows what they said? I don't know. But in uh, in a situation uh, where people accused me of being aggressive or overly aggressive, guess what? I ignored it. You know what? You, you take all that stuff inside and internalize it. it. It erodes at your ego and your confidence. You can't afford to. You really need a self-tape deep inside that the minute you start going down that rabbit hole of negative self-talk that you can pull something else out and start talking to yourself like, yeah, man, I'm cool, man. They're lucky to have me. To pump yourself up, you really need that kind of self-tape to just blot out, blot out, I guess is the right word. Anybody, anyone else's conversation that they're trying to communicate. How did you become so confident? I'm not confident at all. 
nobody's really confident. Just some of us have a better game. Um, I'm confident that I've accomplished a lot, but put me in any situation where it's something new, I'm scared to death like everybody. But what I have learned, my secret sauce is my insecurity. Because I'm insecure about going into anything new, I grossly over-prepare. I over-prepare and over-prepare because I'll tell you what is a great alternate for real confidence is over-preparation. You over-prepare for something, go up against anyone, and uh, what they're going to see is a confident person. You're going to fool them every time. And after you start talking with the confidence of knowing you're over-prepared, guess what? You actually start to almost feel confident. Did you ever deal with any sexual harassment? Well, yes, of course, but I didn't honestly choose to see it that way. I had uh, 22 jobs before I started my brokerage firm at 23, so I had 23 bosses. I had, um, I guess I'm trying to think, did I have a female boss? I don't think I ever did. Maybe I'm leaving someone out there. Did I have sexual harassment, as you call it? I had men who were flirtatious, okay? Maybe men who were a little inappropriate in their flirtations, but you want to know something? I left it off. I kidded them back. I moved out of the way. I went to, uh, went down the hall. And I actually remember on many occasions with some very elderly, very successful bosses really hitting on me, thinking, good for them that they have the courage, that they think they're actually good looking. These are old guys. So I, I actually saw the humor in the whole thing and moved out of the way. You famously sued Donald Trump and won. So I'm just wondering what that experience was like. Well, it was one of the f- most frightening things that ever happened to me because we were good real estate pals through many years until, of course, I had to collect a commission for $4 million. And then that's how you get introduced to the other Mr. Trump, of course. And so that was terribly frightening to think that I'm being... It It was like being sued by a Goliath. You know, you're a little tiny person and the big guy is coming for you. Fortunately for me, and funny how things sometimes work in timing, I had had my first very successful real estate year in my brokerage business where I actually had large profits, which had never happened for the 16 years or so before that because I was always spending the profits before they came in on building the business. But I was able to hire the toughest, meanest attorney that I could interview in town because I figured my mother always said, you need a bully to beat a bully. And that's exactly what I did. I got a bully to beat the bully. And that cost me $500,000 in legal fees. But thank God I had the money. I've heard you say the difference between successful people and others is how long they spend time feeling sorry for themselves. What do you mean by that? It's really true. You know, in my original business of hiring real estate brokers, I had to uh, ascertain what would make a great real estate agent who wouldn't with no experience to judge by. It's a hard thing to do. And so I made a study of my top salespeople, the people who are earning two, $3 million a year selling apartments in New York City, where as my average person was earning 45000 So I really made a study of what made them different. Was it their connections? Yeah, connections help when you get into the business. You know all the right people? You have the best shot at getting a good start. Uh, was it their education? A well-educated, articulate person makes a better listing presentation. Definitely helpful. And on and on the list went. However, when I really tried to figure out what the one commonality between each of my top multi-million dollar producers were, it was simply that when they took a hit, they took less time feeling sorry for themselves. Less time. Didn't mean they didn't get it in the gut and feel it, but they almost like popped up like a jack in the box. Boom, I'm back, I'm back. Almost as though they weren't smart enough to lay low. And it's interesting, in the many years I've been working on Shark Tank as an investor over nine years, I found it took me two years to catch on. But on the second year, the second season of Shark Tank, I realized that the best entrepreneurs are exactly the same. That's the only difference between them that are making me a lot of money and making millionaires of themselves and everybody else. And so I'm looking for that same trait, the ability to get back up and do it fast. And you know, it's always said about persistence 
and it sounds so boring, but I think it's even more specific than that. It's this this reel that goes on when people feel sorry for themselves, they're down for the count. When you're down for the count and blame me on the next guy and blah, 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 you can justify anything. You don't have a winner there. You got a guy who takes responsibility, a girl who gets right back up and says, oh, so the delivery didn't come. The, the prototype was wrong, but I hired the wrong guy. Not like the guy didn't deliver, but I hired the wrong guy. And, and that's a, a self-responsibility. But most, much more important than that is they don't stop to feel sorry for themselves. How do you develop that resilience? Well, one way to do it is by practice. I mean, I fortunately, as a kid, had a tremendous practice at bouncing back up. And so I had a really good head start, almost like cheating my way to business success even as a kid because I couldn't learn to read or write. And when you're a kid in school that can't read or write, you become the laughing stock of the class. You become uh, the kid that learns shame in the classroom because you're asked to read out loud. Nothing's worse to be asked in front of your peers to do something that you can't do. And it's repeatedly again and again and again. And so growing up with that, I had to still sit in that classroom. I still had to come in the next day, you know, and keep a smile on my face, at least for the first half hour. And so I think uh, experiencing failure is the best way to learn to get back up. If I hadn't had that opportunity, um, the second best way, which I learned the minute I entered business, is to try on as much and as fast as you can, assuming you're going to fail at most things and being okay with that. What's odd today is I have two children, 24 and 12, and I have to stop myself from sheltering them against failure. It's such a motherly instinct. But I really went out of my way raising my son, who's now an adult, and I'm trying to do the same with my daughter, to let them fall on their face. (laughs) Gosh, let them fall on their face because it's such a much more important trait in life for kids who can bounce up than for kids who can do everything right. This podcast is brought to you by Northern Trust Wealth Management. There's more to being a successful entrepreneur than just good business practices. What is it about an entrepreneur's childhood that helped fuel their entrepreneurial spirit? What are entrepreneurs doing to cultivate this spirit in their own children and build a legacy beyond their business? Tune in each month to the Road to Why podcast by the Northern Trust Institute, where host Eric Shapea dives deeper with leading entrepreneurs on these topics and more. Find the road to why where you listen to your favorite podcasts. For a new podcast experience, subscribe to the Future of Everything podcast from The Wall Street Journal. Now on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play Music. The Wall Street Journal. Listen ambitiously. You're listening to Secrets of Wealthy Women from The Wall Street Journal. I've heard you say the universe rewards courage. How so? A funny thing happens, and I'm not making it up, although this sounds like fortune-telling, silly kind of stuff, but I'm telling you, whenever I took a leap of faith on something that I was really afraid of, it was like the minute you really throw your body into it and commit, it's like a, a signal that goes out, do, 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 in the universe, come help her, come help. It feels like the right people stepped into your life, the circumstance presents itself, you get rewarded for courage. No doubt in my mind, no doubt. I, I definitely remember, as a simple example, but a but a clear one, firing my first top producer who was producing 60% of my company income. I only had like 20 people, but one person producing 60%, but she was a chronic complainer, sucked the life out of the rest of the staff and put a tone on my whole office that was just terrible. But she was such a producer, we all accepted it. And the day I finally had the courage, just 
just had the courage to fire her. I thought I'd be out of business, but I had had it. Do you know the next morning, my next superstar walked in the door. That's a very clear, concise example, but I've had that happen again and again. Every time I reached out and was courageous, the universe does rally around your flag and comes and supports you without a doubt in my mind. You came from humble beginnings. What's the biggest lesson you had to learn about handling significant wealth? I could argue either side of being poor or being rich. Here's my top points, okay? To give the poor people a chance. I found it easier to be happy poor because life is less complicated. I had the two major cards given to me in life. I had a mother and a father who loved me and was at home, okay? Good parents, all right? Uh, When you have good parents as a kid, you're pretty happy. Life's not so bad. I mean, every kid gets a bad day. You have two parents loving you every day, not so bad. Now enter truckload of money dumping on you. I have nine siblings. It changes that relationship, changes relationships with the friends. You have to judge how genuine someone is. You have to make lots more decisions of who to give money to, who not to give money to, what's the best use of money. Money complicates, I guess, is what it really is. I'm not a complicated person. I'm pretty simple-minded and puts a lot of other stuff to manage that I really wish I could live without. But if I was sincere about that, what would I do? I'd give away all the money and be poor again, but I'm not giving that money away. I had to work so hard for it. So you could take me on face value and maybe question me on this one. I'm not sure I'm entirely genuine on this answer. (laughs) What's a money lesson you wish you had learned at 30? Well, actually uh, nothing because I knew the most important money lesson I learned as a kid by watching my mother and father. They could hardly make ends meet, but my mother practiced the philosophy that money was meant to be spent. We never had a dime left over in anything. She didn't go into hock for us, except with the local dentist, because 10 kids is expensive. She had to owe the dentist all the time. What I learned from my mother is that there's no value to money. And I remember once I was near bankruptcy at the Corcoran Group in my seventh or eighth year of the firm, and I had a lot of people I employed. I felt totally responsible. And what happened was my mother actually said to me on the phone, one night, you're not worried about money. I said, yeah, I think I'm going bankrupt. I'm worried about money. She said, what a total waste of time, Barbara Ann. And, you know, my shoulders went down. I thought, she's right. What am I worried? What, what does it do to worry about money? So I do have a philosophy that money is meant to be thrown at the wall, see what sticks. I've never valued money. I never even tried to make money. It just came my way because of how hard I worked and how many things I tried. Did your mom get to enjoy your success? Of course. The most happy day of my life to date. Now, my mother and father have recently passed away. But the happiest day that I lean on a lot now is the day that I made my first real profit at the Corcoran Group. The real profit, I think I had like $21,000 for the year. And I went out and I bought both my mother and father each a brand new car and had it delivered to them by my Uncle Richie and his friend. And you know, that kind of, uh, well, there's a good argument for having money. I mean, wow, is that a high when you could do for someone because you have the money? Because such a curse is when you really want to do for people in your life, your kids, your family, and you can't help them because you don't have the funds to help. I have the great privilege of, yeah, I'll, I'll. I'll take care of that. You have said you went through seven rounds of in vitro before having your first child. Well, you are a good researcher. You know, you're so interesting to learn about. That just must have been grueling emotionally and physically. How did you keep going? Well, I was hopeful. And remember, I'm one of 10 children. So I assumed I could always have children whenever I wanted them. But I waited very, very long. And then when I found I was incapable of that. I went through all the in vitro attempts. And then when I found I was incapable of even having a baby like that, I asked my five sisters who would want to volunteer. They all volunteered. And I picked my youngest sister, who was 18 years younger than I. And so I was able to have uh, one healthy baby because of my baby sister. I was hopeful is what got me through that. You know, when someone wants to be 
really apparent. It's such a force to be reckoned with. It's hard. It's really hard to stop someone. Lucky for me, in vitro is expensive. Hey, we're coming up with more arguments why it's good to have money. I was able to afford it. What advice do you have for women who are trying to get through that process? Well, the minute the pain of it is gone, the second the pain of it is gone, the rush of sheer joy that replaces it could make up for 50 years of that same pain running again and again and again. It's so worthwhile if that's what you want to do. You sold your business in part to focus on your family, from what I understand. Do you think it's not possible for a woman to have a big career and also a good family life? No, I think you can have a big career and a a big family life, but it's extremely difficult. I could have never built the Corcoran Group if I had had children. Not a single, I would have had a a successful company, but I wouldn't have had a company 1,000 people strong that I could sell for 66 million. I would have had a, a good company that was making me a living, I'm sure, but it's very, very hard. I mean, even now, having a 12-year-old at home and with all the focus you want to be as a great mother, okay, and running a very busy career is very, very hard. If you had asked me to, 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 oh, by the way, we also want you to build a giant business, I would say as much energy as I have and as single-minded as I can become and hyper-focused, I could have never. But what I have learned is to really uh, separate family and business. So when I walk in that door and I'm with my daughter, Kate, my husband, um, I really, I can't honestly say, you know what, I'm lying. I used to be able to say before, before all the emails and the texting that I don't even think of business, but so much is coming at you that you could really just almost live your life at home in, in a general form of suspension, waiting for the next interruption which is a horrific way to live a life. You're giving it away as, you li- as you're living it. So I try my best not to do that. Uh, do I do it well? Fairly well compared to most of my friends, but not as well as I'd like. What are the pros and cons of having kids later in life? The con is they've got old parents. And although my kids, I don't think are worried that I'm going to kick the bucket, I clearly am going to kick that sooner than they're going to want. Energy is an issue not for me because I have my mother's energy and she never slept. I could just run on like an ever-ready battery for 18 hours a day and never get tired. I just have huge energy. So I have more energy than most of the young parents in my kids' classes always. So that's not an issue. But you know what you have when you're older? You appreciate the preciousness of that gift. You know, when you're so busy when you're young and hustling, just get the food on the table. I can actually almost fill up my eyes with tears a few times a day, any given moment on how lucky I am to have these kids. I don't think I'd have that wisdom when I was 23. I was too busy making my way in the world. It was all about me. And I would have made room for children as all young parents do, but I think I would have been swallowed up somehow and not have lived a very fruitful and fulfilling life for myself. Switching gears, what advice do you have for women who want to become real estate investors? Well, real estate investment, whether you're female or male, makes no difference. It's the same old thing you ought to be thinking about. I'm a believer in keeping it simple, stupid, uh, staying with what you know. So when I started buying real estate, I started by accident because I couldn't find a, um, a commercial space to open a new office. So I had to buy a building. That's what got me into it. It wasn't intelligence. It was like I was forced to buy something. So I bought a building for 800000 that today is worth $7.5 million. Actually, $17.5 million. I had it appraised a year ago for some purpose. Okay. So that was an accident that happened. Um, what I've done my whole life intentionally in buying real estate is stick with my knitting. I buy in my own ballpark what I understand. Okay. And when I go out of my own ballpark, which is Manhattan, because everybody gets priced out of Manhattan, I tippy-toe out cautiously into the boroughs. But I always tippy-toe in the direction of whatever a creative gay waiter told me at dinner the night before. And then I go out and I look at that area. That's where I try 
try to buy because I find that the creative community always goes into any neighborhood first before it blossoms because they're looking for a big space, cheap rents, and they bring that delicious creative energy with them. And then before you know it, the next thing happens. And then before you know it, the next thing, the son of six years later, you see baby carriages down the streets. I think it's the earliest signal of go, 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 good investment. Biggest real estate mistake to avoid. Going along into some, like, let's say Phoenix, Arizona, phenomenal value right now. Foreclosures are up. You go and you start investing in Phoenix. Why would you do that? Why not buy the apartment next door if you get it at a cheap price? Better better bet, okay? The other thing as an investor, uh, the worst mistake I ever made was I bought a 14-unit cheap motel in the country close to my home only to find out that I checked the rents, all right? Definitely I checked every lease, but once I closed on it, I found out that all of those tenants had not paid their rent in four years because I didn't check the actual rent receipt. So I think I always start when buying a building, let me see the rent receipts. I learned that lesson once and for all, but a lot of people make that mistake. Advice for women who want to start their own business. My God, do it now. What is, I mean, if you are inclined to do it, please don't analyze it to death. It will stop you. If you think about it, just get busy starting to do it. Do it as fast as you can before you have a lot of responsibility, mortgages, kids, other things that take up your time or more to lose. The faster you do it, the better. I mean, just think about the world. Daydream. I mean, I'm the best daydreamer that motivates me. It's, I still daydream on the next thing and the next thing after that. Think of this. You wake up in the morning. You're starting a baby. It's like raising a little baby, all right? You are going to put your heart and soul into it. You're going to fall down. You're going to get up. You're going to meet new people. It's all about you. You're going to decide what color your walls are, whether you put wallpaper up or not in your office. You're going to decide who you hire. Would you like them? You don't like them? Fire them. Hire somebody else. You're in total charge of your world, and you can make exactly what you want it to be. And if it all doesn't pan out... If you're inclined to want to do it, if it all doesn't pan out, I've never met anyone who regretted that step. They said, thank God I did it. The people that I meet all the time are the people who regret that they didn't do something. Those are the sad souls in life. Time now for your secrets. I'm Barbara Corcoran. I'm a shark investor. And my money secret is money is meant to be spent. Don't save it. Don't count it. Just figure out what you could throw it at that could turn into more money. Be sure to check back for future episodes featuring Charles Schwab's Lizanne Saunders and hear past shows at wsj.com slash podcast, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite audio provider. I'm Veronica Dagger. Thanks for listening. What's your secret? Let us know. Write podcasts at dowjones.com or on Twitter. Use hashtag Secrets of Wealthy Women.